Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm, but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners to get your copy and get diving already. marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question. What is the similarity between a crocodile and a computer? They both have bites. What do you call a group of crocs sleeping on top of each other? A crocopile. Melissa Christina Marquez is a marine science education expert, TEDx speaker, author, and podcast host currently finishing her doctoral degree. She's been featured on several national platforms, including NPR and Popular Science, and appeared on Disney, BBC, Nat Geo, Discovery Channel, and Good Morning America. Born in Puerto Rico and raised in Mexico, Melissa has worked at the forefront of marine science, education, and communication for over a decade, her work taking her all over the world to U.S., New Zealand, and now Australia. In this episode, we chat about how Melissa balances science and outreach, the importance of role models, and her work demystifying misunderstood predators. Please enjoy. Melissa, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me. So doing my research with you, there's just one thing that you cannot escape at all, and that is sharks. It's like your thesis for all of your degrees, and it just completely has captured your fascination. So I'm really curious, like, why sharks and how did they capture your imagination so thoroughly? Yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated with misunderstood predators, those that kind of have a bad reputation, the villain in the story, if you will. And sharks just happen to be, in my opinion, one of the most, if not the most misunderstood predator out there. And so I kind of just wanted to delve a little bit more into this animal, figure out, you know, why is it demonized? Why have we always had this relationship with them? 
why is that relationship how it is today? And that's what I try to do through my research and also through my outreach is just to glean a little bit of what perceptions of sharks were in the past and what they are today as well. Yeah. Was there a specific moment that you were like, that's it? I want to know more about sharks and I want to spread the message about sharks. Or was it just kind of like a slow evolution of just falling in the, in love with the ocean and you learning more about them? I mean, I, I grew up around the ocean, so I'm from Puerto Rico, which is a Caribbean island. And so the ocean was kind of always in my background. I was always a part of the ocean there. And so, yeah, I think it was just, they happened to be a piece of the puzzle of me wanting to know more about that ecosystem. And once I got to kind of look at that piece of the puzzle, I became really, really enamored with it and kind of just put all my efforts into it. And as I grow a bit older, I do want to expand a bit more of my work for other marine animals as well. But sharks are always going to have that special place in my heart. I love it. So why did you choose to become a scientist? I saw the path of being a scientist pretty much the best way of me answering those questions that I was curious about, the ocean. You know, scientists have the ability to get funding and do research for the questions that they have about the environment around them. And that's what I want to do. I want to, I have so many questions in my head about the ocean, about sharks, about other animals. And I want to be able to do research to answer those questions and see what's going on. Awesome. So your work really has gone, it's not just the science though. It's also writing books and you've been on like Shark Week and have had other TV productions. So how did you, I mean, it's all related to sharks and it's all related to the ocean. So it kind of works seamlessly together, but how did you decide to branch out just from the science? It's not something that many do. Well, I'm Latina and we like to talk. (laughs) And so for me, it kind of was just a natural extension of doing the science is telling people what I'm doing. And it's not just telling my friends and family, it's in a way telling the whole entire world. And I know that a lot of people are enamored with the ocean and with these animals, but they don't have the ability to be able to go to the ocean or see these animals for themselves. And so I kind of like to be that person who pours that into their lap and be like, look, you can't do it yourself right now, but let me show you the behind the scenes. Let me show you what I'm doing. It's just a small snippet of it, but let me show you what's out there and, you know, hopefully inspire some people who once upon a time wanted to be a marine biologist or are thinking about being a marine biologist, just inspiring them to maybe go down this path as well for their own reasons. Yeah. Did you have a source of inspiration when, as you were starting your career or even like thinking about what you wanted to do as a career? I mean, I I didn't have any Latina scientists to look up to besides my mom, who was a biochemical engineer and then she was a biology teacher growing up. And so I did get to see her in that science space. So she definitely is a big uh, source of inspiration for me. But other people like David Attenborough, Jane Goodall, uh, Sylvia Earle, Eugenie Clark, I mean, those are all big names in the conservation world. And so of course, they were influences and role models for me as well. Absolutely. So what inspired you to write your books? You have like a whole you have a whole series and wild survival. Would you chat a little bit about them and kind of, you know, what brought on these books? (laughs) 
So similar to how I said that I was really enamored with misunderstood predators, it, it's trying to showcase them in a different light. So there's a trio of books for wild survival. The first one focuses on crocodiles, the second one sharks, and the third one jaguars. And all three of these animals have bad reputations um, worldwide or in some parts of the world uh, due to human wildlife conflict. So people butting heads with them in many a way. And so this is kind of my way of showcasing them in a different way from an early age to kids because you know they are quite malleable they're really curious about the world they want to know a little bit more about it and so they do that through books you know you can escape to brand new worlds through books and so this is just one way that they can learn about these animals in a way that they probably might have not heard of them before with characters that look like them so the Villalobos family, who is the stars of the Wild Survival book, they are a Afro-Latinx family. So they are people that you normally don't see in the wildlife conservation sphere. And that to me was really important, was not only highlighting the different animals and the different ways to see them, but also the different people that work with these animals as well. That's awesome. So would you give us a premise of one of the stories? Just how did you work to shift that perspective, right? Because, yeah, you you mentioned crocodiles and sharks certainly have a huge uh, stigma worldwide about, like, they're just vicious predators. Yeah, I mean, some of the stories that you see in Wild Survival actually come from my own experiences out in the field, um, especially the first one, even though it wouldn't seem like it because it's, you know, crocodiles and I'm sharks. Um, that actually, I had an experience with a crocodile. And so I put that in the book. And yeah, a lot of it is just experiences that I've had with these animals and writing them down in a way that is exciting and draws a person in to want to keep turning that page until they're to the end of the book. How did you branch into TV production as well then? For me, I mean, it was right place at the right time, I think. I did a TEDx talk in Wellington, New Zealand back in 2017, where I discussed the lack of representation of shark scientists on Shark Week and other TV shows that highlighted wildlife conservationists. And somebody apparently ended up seeing it Discovery and they really liked it. They really liked my energy and my message. And so they decided to call me and ask if I wanted to be on one of the Shark Week shows that was going to be coming up and filming in Cuba. And so that... I want to say it was by sheer luck and accident, but all of the hard work that I did up to getting to that stage, that TEDx stage, led to that, essentially. Absolutely. And I really like that they heard what you were saying, right? They were like, there's a lack of scientists and she's one, so let's call her and remedy the situation. All of your thesis that have gone around have been with sharks but you've been around the world doing this why why are you traveling so much <laughs> with your with your education yeah i mean i i'm definitely one of those people that i think the world is our classroom and so i wanted to learn new things in different places uh new zealand is the complete opposite of from where i live and so i wanted to immerse myself in a different culture a different ecosystem as well and a different science. And then I've always, ever since I was a kid, I've been enamored with Australia. And so I wanted to learn more about the species here that they have. And 
again, immerse myself in a different culture and in a different country, which I love and I now call home. That's awesome. So I've had several shark scientists from Australia on the show in the past. And something that always just strikes me is it's hard to be a shark conservationist in Australia because in a lot of the places, the government's still actively against sharks, like very vocally. So for you, what has been your experience there and kind of that dealing with that perception and all those regulations that are very much against sharks? I think the good thing is, is I've come in a time where the tide has kind of changed. I've come after the 2013-2014 beta drumlines situation where a lot of the public was enraged by that. And so I think the government heard and has now decided to shift to more non-lethal measures to deal with sharks. Of course, there still are shark nets and whatnot around Australia, but I think the public's preference to non-lethal ways of reducing ocean goers or like um, beach goers risk is being heard. And so for me here in Western Australia, I've had nothing but support from the organizations that I've worked with and also my advisors to pursue something with sharks. So I've been quite lucky. That's great. Would you chat a little bit about what your thesis is? I know you've been, before we started recording, you said you've just been really nose to the grindstone the last few months get working on it. Yeah, so I'm hopefully going to finish, or rather the idea is to finish this year. So it's been really full on. My thesis is a combination of ecological sciences as well as social sciences. So I'm looking at the human dimensions of conservation as well as the biological and ecological ones. I'm using different types of technology to understand shark habitat use, so figuring out why they are, where they are, and how the environment influences where they possibly are, as well as looking at media portrayal of these animals and how that's changed over the years and what that could possibly mean in regards to public acceptance or rejection of sharks. And that's why it's a PhD thesis. There's so many ways I want to approach that with you. So I saw that you're using global fin print data. Could you explain what that is and how you're utilizing that in your research? So I'm actually not utilizing that anymore. That website is out of date. So I'm actually collecting my own data. Oh, okay. So how are you doing that then? I'm I'm using different technological tools. So I'm using, can't really go into it too much just because I haven't finished that part of the thesis yet and it hasn't been published. So unfortunately, I can't talk too much about that. Okay. The other part of it was, I'm really curious with your analysis of media portrayal. And is this something that you can talk about as well? Just like that side of it, what has been your perception with that? Mm, So I've been using automatic sentiment analysis to put media articles from Australia and from other parts of the world to look at what emotions are coming out of the sentences of the articles that are being written about sharks. So figuring out, are they positive, neutral, and negative? That is currently being looked over by my advisors and then being sent off to a journal. So unfortunately, I can't talk about the results. Unfortunately, with PhDs, there's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of hush-hush until the PhD thesis is actually done. (laughs) But just because of, you know, 
not so much being scooped, but just wanting to make sure that the science is sound, that it's peer reviewed before you're actually out there talking about it. So I do have to wait for that process to be able to openly speak about it. But it's really exciting using sentiment analysis and seeing how we can expand on that technology to maybe predict how people feel about animals or how they're going to predict how they might feel about certain protections or laws or conservation measures being enacted for them. Yeah, that's fascinating. I had no idea that we had a technology that could analyze for that. It's like technology for everything, isn't there? Yeah, it feels like it. (laughs) Awesome. So uh, we can talk about your master's thesis, hey? God, that was forever ago. <laughs> I know it's always it's it's always the real sticking point with PhD theses is that your advisors are like, don't talk about it, don't talk about it until you've got it like submitted to a journal, until you can go to conferences and talk about it. It's frustrating because you're like, oh, I have all these like things that I want to discuss, but until it's peer reviewed, unfortunately, it gets frowned upon, and we do get almost crucified at the stake, so to say, if we do talk about it without it having gone through the peer process review, which it's understandable. You don't want to talk about something until it's been vetted by other experts in your field. No, that's absolutely, that's part of the process, right? To actually make sure what you're saying is true. Otherwise you could just be spreading false information all over the place. So it's understandable. It's totally understandable. And I get that. Why did you decide to pursue a PhD then in the first place? For me, being able to conduct my own research is something that I'm really interested in doing, be it with organizations such as NGOs um, or government entities, like through contracts or anything like that. I find that quite fascinating and I would love to do that. So in order to be able to do that, you have to have a PhD or it's rather preferable that you have a PhD because you learn so many skills on how to run your own experiment from the conceptualization of the idea all the way to the carrying out at the field work, doing the statistical analysis, writing it up, um, disseminating those results. So yeah, for me, it was just another step in being able to answer those questions that I have about the ocean. How have some of these questions changed as you've gone further in your studies? Like how has your perception changed or remained the same as you've gone further in your studies? I mean, my questions for my PhD have definitely changed because of the pandemic. So the places that I wanted to go and do field work at, I was unable to do just because we had to isolate. The world kind of shut down. And so I wasn't able to do it where I originally wanted to do it. And the original aims and objectives I wanted to reach kind of flew out the window because of the pandemic. Mine was very interpersonal, talk to people, really get to know them. And you can't do that in the middle of a pandemic when you're supposed to be six feet away. So yeah, the research questions have definitely changed. The perception of sharks for me has stayed the same. If anything, it's just kind of grown more in awe because I'm learning about species here in Australia that I didn't even know existed. So yeah, I I think the perception has changed. And if anything, I've just grown to love them a bit more. That's cool. What's one or two of the species that you've learned about in Australia that you didn't know before? I really love sicklefin lemon sharks and milk sharks are really cute as well. So those two, I've gotten to see them quite a few in my underwater video footage and they're always a pleasure to see. (laughs) 
Aw, that's cool. How big do they get? Well, the milk sharks and the lemon sharks that we're seeing are quite smaller just because it is in a more secluded area. So yeah, they tend to be more in the juvenile stage, which they're just adorable when they're at that stage. Yes, they are. It's like down in the Keys, you know, they get the grass flats and stuff and you just see lemon sharks everywhere and they're like two feet. They're so cute. Yeah. Yeah. No, just super, super cute. The sickle fin lemon sharks get, I think, about the similar size to the lemon sharks that the States has. Uh, So there are two different lemon shark species. I think they get maybe around up to 12 meters or 12 feet, 3.8 meters. And for the milk sharks, I want to say they're like other species that are in that family, but I'm not 100% sure off the top of my head what that exact measurement is. But again, we we see them when they're a bit more juvenile. So very, very cute. (laughs) Yes, they are. They're really cute when they're small. That's awesome. So you're the founder of the Fins United Initiative. Would you explain a little bit about what that is and, you know, your aims and goals? Yeah. So Fins United, it's taken a little bit of hiatus again because of my PhD and it's actually going a rebranding and changing on what I want to do as I start to transition out of my PhD into a more full-time freelance career. But it's kind of the same exact mission that I have with all of my work, which is just educating people about the different sharks that are out there, as well as the relatives of sharks, so the skates, the rays, and the chimeras, as well as highlighting the different people that study these animals. You know, a, a lot of people, myself included, grew up with not seeing a diverse cast of people being shark scientists. Often we saw them as white older males. And so through Fins United and through the work that I do currently, since Fins United is on hiatus, it's just showcasing and connecting people of different backgrounds who work with sharks and showing people, you know, there, there's a very diverse group of people working on these animals, whether you see them on TV or not. So I hope with all future endeavors that I do in regards to science communication about sharks, I can highlight also the diversity of the people that study them or work to protect them in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that you have lesson plans with Fins United. I think that's really awesome. It's like, did that, was that prompted because of COVID to try to get into the classroom without physically being there? No, Fins United has been around since like 2013, 2014, along with those lessons plans. So it's been for a while there. Okay. That's wonderful. Lesson plans were right out the gate. Again, starting with the kids. <laughs> Always. That's wonderful. Very cool. So what's next for you then? You said you're defending your PhD this year? Yes. So I'll be defending the PhD next year. And to be honest, I don't know what's next. I think that's the exciting bit though. It's a little bit terrifying, but it's also exciting because I've never had that moment of, oh, I don't know what's next. It's always been, okay, well, I'm going to school. I'm going to do this project next or anything like that. And well, I have a few ideas of what I would like to do next, nothing set in stone. And so, yeah, it's, it's exciting. But I do know after the PhD, I will definitely be taking a break to just breathe and collect myself. <laughs> yes. But you took some space between your master's and PhD, no? I did. Yeah. I just wanted to take a break from academia and I moved over to Australia to do a working holiday visa during that time. Just see something outside of the classroom. No, absolutely. And 
I think you just kind of start to approach things with fresher eyes, right? Rather than just like continuously sticking your nose to the grindstone and just like continuing on with academia. I mean, there's people that do it and it just works for them. But I think there's definitely something to be said for like getting that experience and getting different perceptions and perspectives with it. Would you chat a little bit about what your working holiday was between your master's and your PhD? I was nothing special. I was just a secretary. (laughs) No, I love it. Was just the secretary. But I mean, it was nice because at least I got to do the secretarial duties that I had to do for the different companies. And then when I had downtime, it actually allowed me to do some writing. So that's how I got into Forbes writing. That's how I got to do just writing for fun. And eventually that's where the Wild Survival series, kind of the idea for it came through. And that led to me writing the rest of it through my PhD years. Yeah. I really love that so much because I hear from listeners all the time that, you know, they want to be marine scientists and for whatever reason, they're in just different roles. And sometimes you just have to have a pay your bills job, right? So like you were a secretary and there's nothing wrong with that. Actually, like you mentioned, I think it almost alleviates the brain space for you to focus on things that you want to create, right? Like if you have a job that you're like, this isn't end all be all, but I can create other things with my spare time. And you just like, was a perfect example of that. No, definitely. I, I do think sometimes, and it's not something that's really talked about in academia or in science, is sometimes people do take jobs to just pay the bill. I mean, I, I have many friends who are doctors, so they have a PhD, and they're doing non-science jobs right now because, A, this economy, it's kind of hard to find a job in some places and what you want to do, but also it's nice to just take a breather and look at life through a different lens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a a little shocking for people to hear that because most people that pursue marine science are just extremely passionate about it, right? So it's not it's a little, you know, it's a different perspective. Oh, definitely. No, I mean, and it's one of those things that it doesn't just because you take a job that's not in that science field doesn't mean that you're any less passionate. Sometimes you do just need to take a break. There's nothing wrong with that and I don't think that should be frowned upon, even though it currently is. No, I agree. I think breaks and experience and just getting good perspective is just like some of the best things that people can do. And it's hard to do when you're just continuously moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. Exactly. So you knew going out that you wanted to get a PhD. Why didn't you just go straight for the PhD? I know there's programs that are like, go from your bachelor's, you can get your doctorate right away. Yeah. I mean, for me, that just wasn't an option. You know, I tried to talk about it with a few advisors and stuff like that. And they all said that they preferred to have a master's in between. So that's why I did. Did you take time between your master's and your undergrad? No, I went straight into it. Because it was a year long program, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's nice when it's only a year. (laughs) It was nice. Definitely. It was really tough, but it was really nice. (laughs) And now, when did you start your PhD? Was it 2019? Yeah, but I did take a break last year because I was on set with Ocean Explorer for that pretty much the whole last year. So I decided to take just a bit of a breather from the PhD as well, which was nice because I ended up meeting a lot of incredible people who actually helped me with a bit of the PhD and just seeing things in a different way and going about things in a different way. 
but also I got to learn a lot of different science that even my advisors haven't been able to get to do, which was really awesome. Yeah. Could you chat a little bit about your experience with Ocean Explorer? Yeah, Ocean Explorer was great. Hopefully the show will be coming out later on this year so everyone can kind of see everything. But it's an incredible vessel. The people on board are just insatiably curious, which I love. And the amount of technology that is on board that shift to be able to do some really high quality science is mind boggling. So I was really humbled to be on the boat and be a part of that experience. Yeah. So is it going to be like a series or is it a documentary that's coming out about the the boat and its work? Don't actually know. I don't know what the editing process is like. So not sure what they're thinking of doing. I think it is episodes, different episodes. But again, the editing process is out of my hands. So they could have initially gone with that and go for something else. Yeah. Are you allowed to talk about like what you were involved with on the show? No, unfortunately not. We've got big NDAs. (laughs) We've got big NDAs. I mean, of course, it's it's safe to say that I will be involved with shark things. And we did give some sneak peeks and clues when we were out on the boat. People know that we were off of Portugal and that we were in the Arctic, which was really awesome. I got to see some incredible wildlife from both of those areas both above the sea and helicopters, but also under the sea. I did get to go down in submarines and get to see some incredible animals. But the actual science of it, we can't speak about it again. Just everyone's (laughs) tight-lipped until you end up seeing the end of it, which is really exciting because, I, I mean, we haven't even seen any edits or anything like that. So we don't know what it's going to look like and what they're going to feature. So we'll be seeing it along with everybody else whenever they announce it'll be coming out. That's awesome. How did that experience come about? I've worked with National Geographic before, and so they reached out, and I went through an interview process to see if I was a good fit for the team and ended up being good. (laughs) Wonderful. That's awesome. You're going to knock out your PhD, I mean, technically in four years, but you took a year off. So really three years. Yes. That's very good. I know people that have taken like 10 years to try to do their PhD. That's actually the norm over here in Australia and New Zealand and many other um, countries as well as shorter PhDs instead of the more longer ones. I definitely like over in the States, I know most people take five, seven, even more years for the PhD, but... That's not how it is over here. And especially with funding and stuff like that for international students, you're on a quite tight deadline. Okay. That's good information. I love like learning the differences between the different schooling systems. Yeah, it's really interesting just seeing how they view PhDs over here. Is there a similar weight in your international experience? Have you noticed like a similar weight behind like each degree in each different country? A master's in Australia, you felt like is about the same as the one in the US and like similarly a PhD is like weighted the same as in the US. I mean, I feel like a master's is a master's, a PhD is a PhD. Like once you have the degree, you have the degree. I feel like it's almost cherry picking or just being a bit persnickety if you're just like, oh, well, you got a PhD from so-and-so country. Yours isn't as good as other so-and-so country, if anything. That's, it's a bit... Almost in a way, depending what countries you're comparing, a bit steeped in racism because it's like, oh, well, so-and-so is in 
as weighted as, say, a traditionally Western country. And at the end of the day, I think you've you've done hard work to earn that degree, and that's all that matters, and it should be respected across the board. No, absolutely. I didn't think I phrased my question right. So, like here, people, a lot of people just go straight to masters, like you did, right? Is that very common over, like, in Australia and New Zealand as well? And then, similarly, like, is the PhD kind of just like more pursued or more, like, in job applications, like more required, I guess, than here? Have you noticed any of that? I mean, I haven't been in the U.S. workforce for like since 2015, if not more than that, since I was only there for my undergraduate. So I wouldn't know really the requirements over there. And I think it's quite personal depending on what job you want. You know, a PhD isn't for everybody and it isn't a requirement for every single industry. I think it just really depends on what you want to do. Not everybody needs a PhD to be able to conduct research or be a part of research. I think it's just more what your own personal career goals are to decide whether or not you need a PhD or another graduate degree on top of that. And, you know, for some places, having a PhD actually omits you from applying to some jobs because they think of you as too qualified. Yeah, I agree with that. So at the end of each episode, I have a series of questions that I like to ask. Are you ready? Yeah. I feel like I know the answer to this, but I'm curious. What is your favorite sea creature and why? Outside of sharks, so we'll disregard them. My favorite sea creature is actually the pygmy seahorse. Oh, cute. Why? They're just endlessly adorable. <laughs> but they're they're just these really uh, just beautiful cryptic creatures where, that we don't know that much about them. It's really hard to spot them. You have to be in one place for a while to be able to have your eyes adjust to what's actually coral and what's actually an animal. Their camouflage is incredible. So I love that about them. Yeah. Have you seen them diving? No, no, not yet. But because I am in this part of the world, I really hope I get too soon. Yeah, that's really cool. I hope you get to see them too. What does the ocean mean to you? The ocean to me stands for endless possibilities. You know, it's home, it's familiar in a way, but it's also a complete mystery because it's so unpredictable and it covers so much of our planet, but there's still such profound mysteries about it and the animals who inhabit it. So yeah, endless possibilities. Beautiful. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects up to three, what would you use the money for? That is a tough one. I think it would be to tag a certain amount of animals of each species just to see their movements. Because once we know where they are and how they use those habitats, those places that they're at, maybe we can learn ways to better coexist with them and have both humans and animals thrive. Okay. What kind of tagging would you want to use then? Oh, probably acoustic would probably be one of the ways, but then you have to have acoustic arrays everywhere. So just something that gives you really fine scale movements would be ideal, but it'd be so expensive. Well, this is a blank check. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> this is why it's a blank check question. So we here in Florida, we have like a network of acoustic arrays. And like, if you download one, then you kind of like send your data, send all the data to the people that would have tags that have been pinged on that array. Is there a similar process? Do you know over there in Australia? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it is quite similar. That's actually not something because all of my work currently focuses on non-invasive methods for these animals so non-invasive techniques. It is something that I definitely want to get more into to immerse myself in that world. But I do think it's similar from what I understand. Okay, fair enough. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could just be an incredible day out in the field and magical things happened, or it could be a day where things happened and it just makes a really great story now. Yeah. So probably the one people love to hear from me is when I got bit by a crocodile while filming for Shark Week. But one of my favorite is actually the most recent, and it was going out to remote Western Australia and just being in charge of my own field work for the first time. Like, it, it was such a humbling experience because I was really learning on the fly. I was the expert in the group for the area because I was the one that had the outline of what I wanted to look at and why and where we were going and what times we were doing certain things. So it just felt really empowering at the same exact time as feeling completely clueless. <laughs> and I think it's something that many people can relate to regardless if they're a graduate student or not, is being that confident self, but also being a bit scared. Not to mention, I got to see some incredible wildlife while we were out there, such as sharks and rays, dugongs, sea snakes, big coastal birds, the list goes on. That's cool. So wonderful personal development and magical time in the field. All rolled into one. Perfect. <laughs> it's a great story. At the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today? I would love if people read A Blue New Deal by Chris Armstrong. So I just recently read it and it really makes the reader think about equality, democracy, and sustainability at the forefront of ocean politics. And especially as the blue economy starts to become a bit more trendy and a bit more popular, I think it's something that we do need to discuss. It provides this incredible roadmap of sorts from what we need from governing institutions to help protect our oceans in an equitable way. And while I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is such a great book. I've been recommending it to like all my friends and all people inside and outside of marine biology. Because I think it gets one fired up about inequality in the ocean economy. And it gives us a sobering reality check on what environmental destruction is currently going on right now and how individuals can and should rally for change. So yeah, definitely if you have the opportunity, order it from your nearest bookstore or from your library and have a read and j just think about it. Because I think as we progress with ocean conservation, we need to make sure that we're doing it in an equitable way. I'll have to check it out. If listeners want to find you, learn more about you and connect with you, where's the best place to do so? Best place would be social media. So I'm all over social media. You can find me at Melissa Christina Marquez on Instagram and Facebook and at MCM Sharks XX on Twitter.
Perfect. I'll put a link to that and everything else we chatted about in the show notes today. Melissa, thank you so much for being on the show. No, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.